listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at Northern Light United Church live on Tuesday, March 8th. This was the first in-person Mudrooms event in two years. The co-hosts for the evening were David Noon and Kristen Rankin, and the theme was Under Construction. Profit recipients for this event was Northern Light United Church. Our very first storyteller, the space monkey, who's going to launch this rocket, uh, is Pete Griffin. Pete Griffin lives in Juneau and has been retired from the Forest Service for 12 years. He's written two books, Stories of a Forest Ranger, and then the long-anticipated sequel, Rafts, Raccoons, and Revelations, Growing Up on a Great Lake. For the last 10 years, he's been telling Alaska natural history stories on board cruise ships, and uh, he's going to tell one for us tonight, so welcome to Pete. Well, so in the summer of 1973, I took a job, a summer job with the U.S. Forest Service 200 miles away from home. And in order to save money, I spent uh, that summer in a tent in a Forest Service campground. But lucky me, there was a young woman doing the same thing I was. Uh, living in that campground as well. And over the course of the summer, Catherine and I became good friends. Oh, and she was a, a tall, dark-haired beauty. Well, toward the end of the summer, Catherine's parents came to visit her in the campground, drove four or five hours to get there. And when introductions were made, Catherine's father stood on one side of me, Catherine's mother stood on the other. Bill, he was a formidable man. He stood six foot four. He'd worked hard all his life. Catherine's mother, Marge, on the other hand, she was only four or six, but she was no less formidable. She was Ukrainian from Pennsylvania coal country. And when they learned who I was, they started an interrogation, the likes of which is now banned by the Geneva Conventions. <laughs> What's your father do for a living? Does your mother work or is she at home? What kind of truck does he drive, Ford or Chevy? When are you going to graduate? What kind of a job can you get with a degree in biology? Oh, man, it went on for hours. Well, after they left the weekend, I told Catherine, I said, your parents really put me through the ringer. And she said, oh, it could have been a lot worse. I didn't tell them you were my boyfriend. <laughs> well, three years later, Catherine and I were married. And Bill and Marge would come to visit their daughter. And, and, and I never really knew if or, or how I fit in with her family. Sometimes I felt like the stranger who had stolen Bill and Marge's oldest daughter. Well, eventually my job took me to, to Minnesota, and Bill and Marge, they came to visit Catherine and by now the grandkids. And one of those trips, Marge said, I see you've got a new skiff in the driveway. What do you do with that? Oh, Marge, the walleye fishing here is great. Oh, walleyes are my favorite fish. She laid a plank on that bridge between us. Let's go fishing, she said. So the very next morning, Marge and I went out fishing for walleyes. And before we got started, Marge gave me a long, apprising look. And, and she said, you know, 
Before she passed away, my sister and I used to fish together all the time. And we had this running bet, 25 cents for the first fish, 25 cents for the biggest fish, 25 cents for the most fish. Would you be willing to take me up on that bet? Well, here was a chance for me to win 75 cents from my mother-in-law every time I took her out fishing. So I laid a plank on that bridge between us two, and I said, you bet. And within moments, hey, Marge, I got the first fish. And she looked at it, she says, that's not a walleye, that's a perch. Perch don't count. Whoa, oh, Marge, I got the first walleye. We don't keep them that small. That doesn't count. Well, apparently there were some rules to this betting game with which I was not entirely familiar. The first one of which was that Marge made the rules. Now, eventually, my job took me to Ketchikan. Bill and Marge came to visit, and on the first visit, Marge said, what do you fish for this time of year? Oh, Marge, the kings are in. I said, they're the biggest of the Pacific salmon, the best eaten fish, and Marge said, let's go fishing. And so the very next morning, Marge and I went fishing for kings. Now, fishing for kings wasn't like fishing for walleyes. We trolled and we trolled and we trolled for four hours. Not a bite. And I'm about to tell Marge, maybe we just ought to quit for the day, give it a try tomorrow. Before I could get the words out of my mouth, Marge's fishing pole bent over double and line started screaming off the reels. Zzz, zzz, zzz. Marge, you got a fish. Well, she grabbed that rod and she set the hook and, and that fish took off. And, zzz, and she was reeling. And, no, 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 Marge, you got to put your thumb on the reel and stop them from running. And you pull them back towards you. And then you reel it down. You pull them back towards you and you reel it down. And so she started doing that and the fish would take out line. She'd reel it in. Fish would run and she'd bring it back in. 30 minutes of this, and finally she got that fish close enough to the boat it could see us, and it took off on a run. And she couldn't stop it, and all of a sudden her line went slack. And Marge said, he's gone. No, no, Marge, he's heading for the boat. Reel as fast as you can. So Marge started reeling, and, and she finally got that fish close to the boat, about six feet away, 30 minutes of, of fighting that fish. And Marge, get that fish just a little bit closer so I can get the net under him. And I looked over and she was as, she was as beat down as that fish. She was exhausted. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? I, could, I thought, well, maybe I could grab her line and pull that fish in a little closer. And so I could net it. But one of the things I'd learned fishing with Marge over the years was, you do not touch her fishing line. So, so I did the next best thing I could. I grabbed that landing net by the very end and I hooked my heels under the seat so I wouldn't fall overboard, and I lunged out over the gunnels, and I finally got the net under that fish. I pulled it in, gathered the net over the fish so it couldn't jump out, and I dropped it on the deck between us. And we stared at it, 37 pounds of quivering, ice-cold, wild Alaska king salmon. Well, I stepped over the fish. I was going to give her the Minnesota Fishing Guide handshake. Oh, beautiful fish, nice job. And she set down her rod, she put a hand on each of my shoulders, stood on her tippy toes, and she gave me a kiss right on the lips. <laughs> Our bridge had been completed and it was open to traffic. Well, Marge and I maintained that bridge over the years, and we fished whenever we could, and, and well, when her hips gave out, she couldn't walk down the ramp anymore. We rented a wheelchair, and I'd wheel her down to the boat in the morning and wheel her up to, to the parking lot at the end of the day.
She passed away 14 years ago. And for the life of me, I can't remember the last king salmon she ever caught. But I'll never forget her first. Next up, we have Abby Spofford. Abby moved to Juneau in March of 2020 with her partner Julia and their dog Annabelle. In 2021, they purchased their first home together. Abby loves to dream up home projects, but like her dad, never quite plans out all the details. Please welcome to the stage, Abby Spofford. Before we even closed on our first home together, I pulled Julia out there and our very kind realtor. In the backyard, there's still snow on the ground and I brought my measuring tape. And we were measuring and measuring. I knew that I always wanted a covered porch to sit on and drink my coffee. And here in Juneau, we have no lack of rain. I wanted to be dry. So this was my big idea. I wanted to build this patio cover. I wanted to be dry. I wanted to sit outside and smell the rain. And so I dreamed and I dreamed, and often I was on the phone with my dad, and we would go back and forth. Oh, yeah, you can do that. And well, Dad, what about this? And how do you do that? And yeah, yeah, that's totally doable. And So this little project turned into quite a big project. So my parents were so excited that we moved to Alaska and they were gonna come visit us for the first time. And so we had a week set out, so excited. I ordered the things we needed to build the structure. My dad's like, yeah, yeah, we'll work on this. It'll be great. So I get a call and my dad's like, okay, I'm packing my, my tools. So he's got one of those black boxes with the yellow lid that you zip tie shut that you can fly up here with. And he's done all the research on how heavy it can be. And he's got, okay, I got this saw and you have that saw and I've got this saw. And then I, I brought, you know, I'm going to bring this and that and, and oh, I'll bring my hammer. I'm like, dad, I have five hammers. I counted them five. He's like, but you don't have my hammer that I've had for 40 years bringing my hammer. Okay. So he gets it all packed and here's my mom. I brought my gardening gloves. I'm like, okay, great, Mom. She thought she was coming to this beautiful state to go see this glacier and have a great time and a relaxing vacation. Little did she know, this little patio cover was this huge project. So they show up. We're pulling in the driveway, what's left of the driveway uh, from the airport. All the other part of the driveway is filled with four by four beams and clear corrugated roofing and support pieces. And my mom's eyes were so big. And she's like, what is it that you're building again in your backyard? I was like, well, we're building this covered patio. But of course, this little covered patio, you know, is now this massive project. It was gonna be attached to the house. It was gonna be so wide, we could have parties under it. And so we all, you know, my mom, figured out I'm not here to garden, I'm here to really help this huge project. And so we go in the backyard and we get going. We're digging holes and we're filling with concrete. And, and then my lovely partner, Julia, and my mother start asking clarifying questions. How far apart are these supposed to be? And how long do we need to make these boards? And I'm like, I don't really know. I had some rough drawings and you know I got the main pieces but I hadn't really worked out any of the details. I had no idea how tall this would have to be to let the snow run right off. 
onto the ground. So we kept working. We're on like day three, <laughs> my poor mother. And uh, we're, we're now to the part where we have to get up on the ladders. And it's tall. So I've got like this 10-foot ladder. And we are standing. You know, it says, only go this far. Well, we're already on the top of the ladder. And then we're on our tippy toes. So we're reaching up and trying to screw these, you know, corrugated roofing in. And the tensions are high. No one you know, really knows what we're doing. I have it all in my head, of course, and zero details. And I just kind of thought it was going to come together. But everyone's stress level is really high. So my dad feels like, oh, I've come all this way, and I told you I could help you build this, but it's a huge project now. My mom's like, I was here on vacation. And, um, you know, we all have our coping mechanisms. So Julia's over there in the corner, like, doing math. And then I'll run inside and just sit on the stairs and cry. And then, you know, my dad and I are kind of like, you know, bickering back and forth. My mom just like disappears. And she's like walking the streets of Juno Valley, like, you know, oh my gosh. And my dad's just like mumbling and trying to clean stuff up. So day three, Julia and I have to go back to work. We didn't take the whole week off. So we go back to work and I leave my lovely parents at our house to uh, finish building this structure that may never get finished. And my mom comes to pick me up. She's red from the surprise sunshine in Juno, and she's got some mosquito bites. She's in her really cute overalls, and she's really dirty. And she's like, I just don't know that this is going to happen. We worked so hard today to build this thing for you and to get it done, and we all feel so much pressure. And I just don't know what's going to happen. I was like, that's okay. Like, we can stop now. And you know, of course, then I laid on to my parents, oh, I've invited everyone we know in Juno. Not a lot of people. There was still COVID. We invited everyone over on Saturday to have a party under this beautiful cover that you're here to build for us. And so <laughs> stress was a little bit even higher. And so I'm like, okay, it's not safe anymore. If one of my parents falls off a ladder and breaks their leg, my kind brother will never let me hear the end of that. So I'm, I'm racking my brain. I'm like, okay, we'll get some scaffolding. We'll like go to John Abel's. We'll rent some scaffolding. It'll be fine. So we all go to bed that night. Next morning, I go to work. 6.45, my parents are in the car on their way to Don Abel's. They get scaffolding for $30 for 24 hours, bring it home, set it up, finish the entire project, take it back to Don Abel's, and then come pick me up at work. So if I maybe knew how tall this project was, we could have avoided some of this stressful situation. But we went on the rest of the week and had a blast. We had like 48 hours to cram in all of Juno, and it was so fun. We all just had a huge relief off our backs. We got to go to a Juno drag show. We got to ride bikes to the glacier, and we got to go crabbing and see some whales. So all in all, it was so fantastic. Driving my parents back to the airport, they had a great time, they had a good story, they built this massive structure. I still couldn't tell you how tall it is because I still don't know the details. Um, and my dad says to me when we're dropping him off, just so you know, this structure has a warranty until this flight takes off and then no more. <laughs> well, fast forward to today. Our structure has survived an entire Alaskan winter and the snow slipped right off. It was like a dream when you were laying in bed and you'd hear it go whoosh. And uh, no wind blew it over and, and here we are. So thank you.
our next storyteller, our third storyteller, is Al Shaw. Uh, Al was born and raised in Juneau. He went to school here and then taught for 20 years in the school district. Al also had the distinction of sitting on the city council right after statehood, and he was a part of the whole process of constructing the city and borough of Juneau, and he's still here, and he's here literally tonight. So, uh, Al, come on up and tell your story. I'm supposed to talk about early skiing, so you go back to 1934, 35, the bridge, first Douglas Bridge, wasn't completed until September of 1935. But winter of 34, 35, people went up Basin Road, up towards Perseverance, skied there. I imagine soon found out the wind was rather something at times. They also rode across the channel because they knew the CC was putting in the Dan Moeller ski trail with a jump and other things. Norm Banfield would have been part of that. Bert Carroll brought in skis and ski equipment. Knew these people. Uh, so here we go. My mother has a picture of me with skis in my hand. January 17th, 1937, in what is now the basement of the Lutheran Church on Glacier Avenue. I thought it was a few years later, but mother whips out the picture. Started real skiing, if you call it that, in the graveyard, wood skis, no steel edges, a toe strap, and an inner tube rubber band to hold the boots on. Just regular, regular packs of sorts. Somehow found out they were skiing up Dan Moeller, went up there, came around the corner, and the ski club had a small rope toe running. I've never looked back. They got me. Then the Army came in in the 40s, in 1946, Tom Stewart found a converted Dodge engine and stuff that had been converted into a, a ski tow. I understand it was from Kodiak. It might have been from Seward. I didn't pay a lot of attention. They took it into the second cabin area, set it up, set it up wrong. The engine at the bottom, it should have been at the top, and we'll get to that later. Then I went off to University of Washington skied in Seattle, but came back here over Christmas. Then Korean War came along, 1950. I ran out of money, got drafted in July of 1951, and found out after I got out of basic that there was, I knew about the ski area in Anchorage. I had skied there once before, and uh, found out that the ski area was run by the Army. Got myself assigned there. <laughs> you can see where this is going. <laughs> and spent that winter there, then got myself assigned to a uh, fire station. 16 months there, knew one of the, the civilian chiefs. Uh, fire stations, the only fun is going to a fire. You're on 24, off 24. Ski area ran three days a week. I skied every day because no, always there was somebody who would stand by for me. Most of the people in the station were staring at the, the ceiling or looking at girly magazines. So I had no trouble putting in all that time. In January of 1953, took a 30-day leave and spent three 
weeks at Sun Valley, Idaho. Took 15 days lessons, had never had a ski lesson. I went in with all the bad habits and they had to beat them out of me. So then heard about Europe, came back, ended up my military time, went back to the University of Washington for fall quarter, and then went off to Europe. Went through an airplane crash at the Zurich airport. You've all been through this. Leave everything in the plane. I had my shaving kit in my hand. I got out, third person out on my side of the plane. The plane is tilted up, put it on rear stabilizer, jumped back up on the wing. I'm pulling people out of the plane, and the rain is falling on the hot manifold behind me. And I'm thinking, well, if I can get high enough, it's snow. Next day, I'm off for St. Anton, Austria. <laughs> Silent Night, Holy Night was composed just up around the corner. I spent Christmas there. After skiing, I'm in the bar with these two fellows. Well, one by his accent is obviously an American. The other one is a Frenchman named Pierre. France is full of people named Pierre. Finally, a couple of days later, I said, what does Pierre do? It was Pierre Belmont, one of the big Paris clothes designers. His outfit is still in business. I got invited to his New Year's party. He didn't get the table he wanted. He said, Al, you come to Paris, we'll go to Maxine's. There I get the table I wanted. There was no snow in Paris, I didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> then I went off to Wengen in Switzerland, skied with a major from the Highland Light Infantry, walked the railroad station under the Eiger with a woman and a man found out later it was Wilhelmina, Queen of Holland. Never talked to her because I was waiting to go skiing. Then <laughs> off to Davos in Switzerland. Spent two weeks there. Skied with this fellow and we're coming along a cat trail and I can see these people way ahead. Well, he was leading. We come around a corner and he flattens this fellow. I mean, he really flattens him. I pull up, reach down, stand him up. I've got Kirk Douglas on the end of my hand. We had lunch with him the next day. The woman he was with had red ski boots. I remember that very well. I mean, they're, they're, everything was black in those days. Anyhow, so got, rid of, got through all of that and came back and got a went to Bellingham, skied Mount Baker and other areas in the Seattle area. Came back to Juneau, taught school. Uh, the ski tour by then had been moved to third cabin. The engine block is still there if you know to look for it. I know where it is. And realized I wanted a double chairlift ski area. People say, why? I said, because that's what I wanted. I didn't care what you wanted, I wanted it. And that's how you get things done in case you, you're interested. <laughs> in the meantime, I, I got on the city council for five years. I found out about Bureau of Outdoor Recreation funding. We fund the August Brown swimming pool with a 1% sales tax, so I knew where the money could come from. Got Tom Stewart to call a meeting December 1957 to get money to survey for a road. And that then went on from there. Eventually we had the money. In the meantime, the Forest Service never did do their homework. By then, they, of course, they didn't want to talk to me. I was creating so much hell. And they didn't do their homework in the bureaucracy. Have you ever tried to move a bureaucracy? They never did the part which you wanted them to do, which was, is that the best area? And it wasn't. 
After the 1957 meeting, uh, I was told within a week about the upper end of Fish Creek. There was no road out in Oaks Brooks. You couldn't even get there. But I never lost track of it. Those of us who skied talked about all the areas, everything from Sheep Creek to beyond Eagle River. If you've ever wondered if that's the best place, yes, it is. There, no, there is no other. And you have not only, you have to have north and east facing slopes. We've got a whole mountain that we never developed. That's the backside of Mount Troy. And everything came out pretty much the way you wanted. We've got a road, no avalanche problems. Their skiers give an arm and a leg to have a road with no avalanche problems. And so all of these things I've been involved with, and yes, I figured out how to fund it. And we did. Now, we needed to bring in people to make it all work. If Craig Lynn, who had a big hand in this, hadn't come in, we'd had to invent him. Because we needed somebody on the Forest Service side to finally ask that question, where is the best area? And we made it. And yes, I'm still skiing. <laughs> Next up, we have Scott Ranger. Scott came to Juneau in 2007 to visit his firstborn daughter, Bess. Finding himself in love with Juneau, two years later, he became a naturalist guide for Gastineau Guiding and has been leading tours with them every year but the dreaded 2020. In 2011, he and his wife, Annette, bought a house here, and in 2014, their second daughter, Mary's, an Alaskan and moves to Juneau. Their grandkids are both Bartlett babies. Scott's been telling stories as an interpretive naturalist for decades, beginning as a park ranger at Crater Lake National Park. While at Cumberland Gap National Historical Park, he met Annette in a cave in Kentucky. That's another story. They ended up spending nearly four decades in her hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, where both daughters are grits girls raised in the South, where they still own a home. Please welcome to the stage, Scott Ranger. Long before coming to Juneau, I knew that Alaska was a place where people built their own houses. After all, PBS could not exist without Dick Prennicke's film of building his cabin on Lake Clark. They all show it at fundraising time. Wherever you go, Dick Prennicke is building his cabin, making all of those cool things. I can't claim any of that, but I do know two of my friends here in Juneau that have built their own house. One of them logged his trees from Coglin Island and rafted them over to Fritz Cove to build his house. That's pretty impressive. Me, I just bought one. But in 1993, I had the opportunity in Georgia to join a build with this strange group called Habitat for Humanity. The church that I was building that with began its 39th house last Saturday when I was flying from Atlanta to here. My time with Habitat, with literal construction, and it's so cool to be day one, we call it the first nail day. And you start off with just this foundation, and at the end of the day, there's walls everywhere you look. It's amazing. And it's brought me lots of different places. One of them was a pretty cool place. I wanted a Jimmy Carter work project to Veracruz, Mexico. 
and hammered nails standing right next to Jimmy Carter, and that was pretty cool. But the very best thing came out of a strange thing. My wife was teaching high school and founded the Habitat for Humanity Club at this high school, and we built houses with them too. And one day, one of our young students says, Miss Ranger, if I come up with something really cool to do for my senior project, will you go with me? And my wife says, sure, Allie, I'll go, knowing that teenagers don't follow through on anything. Well, Allie took us to Zambia. That is a long ways away. My wife didn't even know where it was. All I knew was Lusaka was the capital and it was the former northern Rhodesia. And holy smokes, under construction in my brain went a lot of things going to Zambia. One of my favorite things that happened that was really a lot to do with us going on under construction in my own brain is our youngest daughter, who's red-haired and fairer-skinned than I am, we were sitting around with a whole bunch of the kids in the village of Nkwazi, and one of the little girls who was just at that age where she could put real sentences together, and she was doing it in both Bemba and English, which was really impressive, asks my daughter when she saw her putting sunscreen on her arm, is that why your skin is white? Another day, Allie, the girl that brought us there by just this amazing fortuitousness of working and getting somebody who would take a bunch of teenagers on a habitat trip, we were talking after construction one day and came upon some kids who had some animals. And it turns out that they were guinea pigs. Now, I had guinea pigs as a kid. Allie had never had guinea pigs, didn't really know what they were. And as we're looking at those, Allie asks the little girl who these guinea pigs were, do you eat them? And the little girl goes, no, do you? <laughs> wow, that was an eye-opener of major concern for me. I'd never experienced that much of a thing where we're the same but yet so different in our eyes of how we see things. Don't really see things the way they really are. But other times it's really cool. We went back with four teams that we led on our own. And I got to be known in Handyman's Paradise in Indola, Zambia. I walked in on the third trip we were there, go to the back with a bunch of stuff, and the guy at the counter says, Mr. Hubby Totman, you'll get discount. That's awesome when you're 12,000 miles away from home and somebody remembers you. And in the Bemba language, the vowels are like Spanish. They're really fixed, and Scott would be said, Scott. And one day, on our second trip there, we were leaving our little village and going to a marketplace. And I had this habit, because the kids have this wild way of shaking hands that just takes a long time, and there's kids everywhere. So I did the old high five, low five, and hit them hard, and I wanted them to make my hand red. And the kids would jump up and do that. And as we're walking to this little store area, which is just sticks with a top on it with beans and dried stuff. And I hear, it's Mr. Scoat, it's Mr. Scoat, it's Mr. Scoat. I was almost famous in this little village because all of the kids love to slap my hand. Now that has absolutely nothing to do with all of the houses we built. And we built a lot of houses. We had to dig clay out of a termite mound and break the clay with our hands. And one day, 
we ran out of mortar cement to mix with the mud to make the bricks. And we still had lots of clay. This was in the dry season. And so our little team is sitting around and we are breaking clods of earth. What do we break them with? Another clod of earth. And one of the boys says, why don't we have tools to do this? And I looked at him and says, Blake, this is well within our skill level. <laughs> and we made more clay. The next day we had cement and we made bricks out of it. And we had to make about 1,500 bricks a day. Not only if we weren't going to use those because they had to bake in the sun, they would be for the next team that came. So we were using bricks from previous teams. And all of this led me to think, these are really cool people. And all these little kids around, which I love playing with all the time, toss them in the air and do all sorts of things, they would teach me as much as I think I taught them and sometimes more. I learned so much from these little kids. They all knew the president of Zambia at that time, Levi Mwanawasa, and they could tell you all about the flag of Zambia and what the colors meant. And today, if I went back to visit with our friends Felix and Oscar, I'm pretty sure I could sing the Zambian national anthem right with them. And it taught me something that is really haunting me today with that flag of the blue and the yellow and the sunflower. We are people who are under construction and we've got to do whatever we can to make peace in this world. You've been listening to Mudrooms on KTOO News Juno 104.3 FM. These stories were told live on March 8, 2022. The theme was Under Construction. There are two shows left in our season and we're looking for storytellers. Check mudrooms.org or follow us on socials at Juno Mudrooms for more details. Uh, so, back to the stories. Our next storyteller is a uh, returning storyteller. Emily Mesh has uh, told stories here, I think, each of the last three years that we've, we've done these events. Emily came into this world riding on the heels of Halley's Comet and Chernobyl. Bonus points if that gives you an indication of what year. Uh, screaming bloody murder from the inside of a bomb shelter. She may very well go out the same way. Halley's Comet will be returning in the year 2061, so that gives us all about 40 years uh, to get out of the blast zone. Uh, welcome back to Emily Mesh. So when I was a kid, about uh, eight or nine years old, uh, one of my uncles gave me a CD as a gift for a birthday or a holiday or something. It was just called The Sherman Brothers, and I didn't know what that meant, but uh, The Sherman Brothers were... Uh, Walt Disney's primary songwriting team for many years in the 1960s. And this CD was a compilation of about 30 of their songs. And some of them I was very familiar with already. Um, 
Songs like I Want to Be Like You from The Jungle Book or Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious from Mary Poppins or It's a Small World from That Stupid Ride. Um, but there were a lot of other songs that I had never heard before and from that list, from the second group of songs, um, there was one standout song for me. It was called The Age of Not Believing. When you rush around in hopeless circles, searching everywhere for something true, you're at the age of not believing, where all the make-believe is through. And it spoke to me in a very deep way. I don't think I had the words to articulate it at the time, but I knew there was some kind of metaphor behind those words. There was a deeper meaning. It was evocative of a midlife crisis or a deep depression. And uh, it spoke something to me at that young age. I knew that there was a story behind it. I didn't know what that story was. And uh, as I grew older, you know, sometimes being a kid isn't that easy. When I had my own crises, I would often go back to this song and it would help me process through what I was feeling. Uh, but kids don't stay kids, and eventually I grew up, I went to college. And at one point, the thought occurred to me, I didn't know where this song even came from. Every other song, is either a movie or a ride or something, the song was used somewhere, but I didn't know where the age of not believing came from. And I also realized simultaneously that at that point, uh, the internet existed, uh, so I could look it up. <laughs> it turns out the age of not believing is from a movie called Bed Knobs of Broomsticks. It was intended as a spiritual successor to Mary Poppins. It starred Angela Lansbury as a witch in training. It was set in World War II era England. Um, so I found a copy and I sat down to watch it and I was around like 20 years old at the time. It wasn't exactly aimed at my target demographic. But uh, the whole time I was watching, I was anticipating, I was waiting, I was waiting for the scene where they sing my song, where they sing The Age of Not Believing. I would finally get to learn what the, the, the backstory behind this song was. And we get to the scene and, and it's really bad. It's, it's really bad. Uh, the, the plot of the song is that there's this 12-year-old kid who is now 12 years old, and so he's too old to believe in magic. And so his younger siblings and Angela Lansbury are making fun of him because how dare he be 12 years old and not believe in magic. So the whole song, he is sulking in the corner while everybody else is ridiculing him. And there is no deeper meaning, there's no metaphor, there's no symbolism. And I was genuinely upset. For a long time, I couldn't listen to this song anymore because it felt a little bit like a betrayal, like this song had lied to me. You're a castaway where no one hears you on a barren isle in a lonely sea. Where did all the happy endings go? Where can all the good times be? Several years later, uh, I was just randomly uh, in a YouTube hole and I ended up on an interview with one of the Sherman brothers. I think it was Richard, I'm not sure. but. Uh, during the course of the interview, at one point, he starts talking about when Walt Disney died. And he says that for many weeks and a couple of months after that, that his death, the studio was basically shut down. Nobody came to work. Nobody did anything. Everybody was just in this state of mourning. They didn't know what to do. But eventually, they have to get back to work. They have to keep creating uh, art. Um, and he said The Age of Not Believing was one of the first songs they wrote when they came back to the studios. That it was their way of processing, of figuring out, okay, 
What do we do now? How do we keep making magic when the person who's so much responsible for the magic is gone? How do we, how do we have confidence in ourselves to move forward when the person who's been guiding us the whole way isn't guiding us anymore? And suddenly it made sense. That was the metaphor, that was the deeper meaning, that was the, the depression that I had uh, understood when I was a kid. They have to use it for some kind of commercial purpose, so they put it in the movie, but the movie isn't the story of the song, the story of these artists uh, that needed to find their own way when their guide had left. That was the story behind the song. You must face the age of not believing, searching everywhere for something true, until at last you start believing there's something wonderful in you. And I had my song back. Next up, we have Josh Oram. Josh was raised free range on a small family farm in Indiana, instilled at a young age with both a love for community as well as adventure. He has traveled the world making friends at every stop. One of his life's policies is why not? Which has led him through a series of doors opened up by the universe that has ultimately led to living in Juneau, Alaska with his beautiful and amazing partner, Kylie. Please welcome to the mudroom stage, Josh. So the aforementioned beautiful and amazing partner, Kylie, and I uh, we're both raised in houses with strong foundations of love and support. So back in the winter of 2019, uh, we decided to fly back home to the Midwest to spend some time with our families who'd supported us for so long. And Kylie's parents, Sue and Harold, um, both well into retirement. Sue had just been victorious in a long and hard battle with breast cancer. And she had long talked about um, her hopes and dreams to renovate and move into the old family farmhouse that she had grown up in in the country. And after many, many hours of HGTV home renovation TV shows, Harold finally said, okay, let's do it. But on the condition that we do all the renovations ourselves. Poof. And this house in the farm had sit empty for 30 years, so there was no rush. Um, but it turns out there was some young muscle in town, me. <laughs> so we might as well get started on the demolition phase. And with promises of hearty breakfasts and rousing games of Scrabble in the evenings, how could we say no? Picture the next big hit show on HGTV, Operation Farmhouse. The crew, Sue, director of operations, the overall vision, she knew every nook and cranny of that house, and she had a story for each one of them. Harold, the foreman, the literal driving force, he would drive us to the worksite every morning and provide morale in the way of scrambled eggs and pancakes. Chuck, the institutional knowledge, 
the recently widowed neighbor in his 80s who had always worked with his hands, and he just had some extra time and wanted to help out his best friends in the world. That left two spots for this team, Kylie and me, who just wanted to spend some quality time with the family. So starting in December, every morning we'd wake up at the crack of dawn, Harold would whip up some eggs and bacon or toast, and we'd all pile into his silver 2005 Dodge Grand Caravan minivan. I remember that van. And we'd pick up Chuck, and for the next hour on the drive to the work site, Sue would regale us with stories of growing up in this farmhouse. Um, yeah, it was a great time. We never got any closer. It was, we were really doing it together. And a decade would disappear with every layer of wallpaper removed. And once we got everything out of the house that we could salvage, Harold handed me that sledgehammer, and now it was my time to shine. <laughs> this was our regular routine for a couple weeks until we got down to the bones of the house. And as they say on TV, this house had good bones, or so we thought. <laughs> Operation uh, Farmhouse Phase One Demolition, complete. And it turns out we would never get to phase two. Early one Sunday morning, Sue came out to the living room. The big screen TV was on the news. Harold was dozing in the comfy chair like most Sunday mornings. But this Sunday morning, Harold was sitting so peacefully, it took Sue a while to realize that he was no longer breathing. His cup of coffee still warm beside him. Harold had passed. We were devastated. Our foundations were crumbling. Quite literally, it would turn out, because at about that time, uh, the engineer got back to the family and told us that the farmhouse's foundations were no good. The project had to be stopped, and Operation Farmhouse came crashing down around us. Um, yeah, it was tough. And with Harold's uh, sudden passing, even though we felt young and healthy and vibrant, now might be a pretty good time to get some things checked out. And there's just no easy way to hear some words, like immediate surgery, testicular cancer. They're pretty rough ones. Um, but within four days of meeting the urologist, I was on the operating table. And this was only days before the hospital halted all surgeries due to this new thing on the horizon called COVID. So Harold was looking out for me because if I hadn't gone in that same day, it could have been months before I could see a surgeon. And at the small price of only one testicle, I was cancer-free. <laughs> Luckily, I had started with two. 
But we were really in need of some silver linings at this point. And that silver lining presented itself in the form of Harold's silver minivan. As a professional volunteer, over the last 15 years, he'd put over 280,000 miles on that van, um, picking up donations of furniture, delivering people to their doctor's appointments, delivering meals on wheels. And now it, this van would deliver us to our next chapter in life. So we packed that van full to bursting. And with Sue on the in the passenger seat, along for the ride, with her atlas open, open, we just started driving. We swung by Chicago to pick up our friend Nancy's ashes, and that's a whole other story. But we just started driving west, and we had a destination, but we had no timeline. So for the next 30 days, we stopped in a different town every night. From the house on the rock in Wisconsin to the actual standing rock of the Lakota Nation. From the George Floyd Memorial in Minneapolis to a haunted hotel in Rapid City. We got stuck in blizzards and inched our way through bison jams. And we wouldn't think twice about diverting a couple hundred miles to see some old friends. And we made new friends everywhere we stopped. I'll never forget the beauty of geysers erupting over the freshly fallen snow in Yellowstone National Park. Even in the darkest of times, there is a silver lining, if you look hard enough. We had lost Harold, and I was down to one ball. But we were truly living, and we were having adventures, and we were making memories that would last us for the rest of our lives. And through the smell of burning rubber trying to get up an icy mountain in South Dakota, through the smoke of an overheating radiator limping into a garage in Montana, and you'll... You're never quite living until you're driving down a Canadian mountain, icy, snow-covered highway, and you look down the road and you see your front left tire rolling down the mountain ahead of you. You never live in until you've done that. But even through all of that, uh, this silver minivan, who we affectionately named Silver Linings, brought us to our ultimate destination. It brought us to Juneau, Alaska, where we would find our new home and we would start to build a strong foundation in this community that we've grown to love. So thank you and when in doubt, get checked out. Uh, our final storyteller this, this evening uh, is Brett Dillingham, who's also a, a multi-time veteran of the Mudroom stage. Brett lives and breathes storytelling. He apparently eats stories for dessert and sometimes uh, has one for an aperitif. So welcome to the stage, Brett Dillingham.
we're all under construction all our lives. Strengthening our foundations, remodeling rooms, maybe the roof. <laughs> but sometimes you find a part of you that once you constructed it, you never have to do anything about it again. I found that as a young man. This story is called The Mighty Hunter. Six years old, we lived on a farm in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. A semi-subsistence lifestyle. Didn't have money, not much. We had a large garden. We had honeybees, an apple and pear and cherry trees. The cherries were my favorite. But this summer, as they were almost ripe, flocks of birds were coming and they were eating them all up and that was not good. My father went to the hardware store and bought a bunch of little brass bells, tied them on the branches so the wind would make them tinkle and scare the birds or if one landed on a branch, you'd do that. And that worked for all the birds except for the grackles. Grackles, kind of nasty bird. Eat other birds and eggs. Sound like a sick crow when they call. We wanted to get rid of them and, you know, one evening right before eating, my older brothers came in and they were holding these dead grackles by the feet. They'd shot them with their BB guns and mom was mighty pleased about that. Didn't blame her. And I should have been pleased, but I wasn't. I was jealous, darkly jealous, because I had not killed those mean, cherry-stealing grackles. I was six years old, but I thought I could help, but I couldn't. Well, that summer we went to northern Mexico, the first of many summers, a little village called Nacimiento. No running water, no electricity. 250 black Seminoles, Seminole Indians, and Mexicans. It was ideal for children. And that summer, I got what I had prayed for. A BB gun. Finally, I got a BB gun. I can help out. And that afternoon, I went out into the desert because I knew I was going to get something. And I was walking along, looking. I saw huge gray giant horns coming. A rhino. <laughs> One shot. That's right. Kept walking. Saw something yellow moving. A lion. <laughs> One shot. Kept going. Oh, my God. One shot. Diana <laughs> came to a small copse of mesquite trees and a dozen little yellow songbirds flitting in and out. I was seven. I really wanted to kill something. They flew away. I got nothing. It was hot. I was thirsty and tired. I headed back to the two-room adobe we lived in. Maybe a hundred feet away when I saw there in the dust was a gigantic June bug beetle. 
but they are huge, bigger than my thumb, and there was one trundling along. I took my BB gun. I could see where the BB had entered its dark brown carapace, but it didn't stop it. Finally, I put down my BB gun, picked up its carcass, touched the little stick legs, had huge mandibles close to a half inch long. I put my finger between them. It felt like knitting needles had gone punctured my index finger. I was screaming as loud as I could. My brothers came running out of the adobe, one of them pulled it off, stomped on it. I held my finger up, blood running down onto my hand, and it was at that point that I realized I would never be the mighty hunter. This is KTOO News Juno, 104.3 FM. The stories you heard were told live on March 8, 2022. The theme was under construction. Proceeds from the night went to Northern Light United Church. Special thanks to Northern Light United Church for being our host for so many years. Join us for our next event, April 12th, with the theme of All or Nothing. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Bridge Moniak, Jeff Smith, David Noon, Kristen Rankin, and me, Crystal Briette. Thanks for listening and have a great night.